Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm Kim Skorupski. On today's episode, we have Dr. Daryl Kirch, President of the Association of American Medical Colleges. Boom! Dr. Kirch, how are you today? I'm terrific, and I'm so pleased to uh, be joining the podcast. We are so thrilled to have you here. Um, Everybody, I'm sure, is bated breath waiting to hear all the wisdom and your experience and stories for us. I'm curious, how in the world did a psychiatrist, a neuroscientist, find himself to be the president of the AAMC? Well, the uh, the bottom line is it certainly wasn't planned. Uh, I, I'm always struck by how uh, interesting it is for each of us to find the path that we really like in academic medicine. The... Um, uh, I never actually considered even being a faculty member until I was a resident. <clears throat> what interested me at that time was uh, a mentor who engaged me in some research with him. And when I queried him about uh, staying on the faculty, he said, I think that would be great for you, but you really need to broaden your horizons because I'd been an undergraduate medical school graduate and residency graduate all at the same institution, the University of Colorado. He helped me get to NIH. And early on, I thought I might be on a research intensive career, and I ended up staying at NIH for over a decade, mainly because opportunities that I hadn't planned on, I hadn't expected, kept arising. And one of the things I told was totally unexpected was at a research meeting, a colleague I knew who was on a search committee for a dean at the Medical College of Georgia asked if I might want to be a candidate. Uh, When I immediately said I'd be honored, uh, if I'd thought about it, I would have realized, having been at NIH ever since my residency, I was probably the, the worst equipped person in the United States to become a dean. But for whatever reason, they chose me, and through uh, a steep learning curve and some wonderful colleagues who understood faculty affairs, promotion and tenure, uh, the student affairs side of things, these colleagues uh, just formed into a great team. I think that's the skill I brought. I had learned how to, to build teams, but this was in a totally new venue. It turned out... If I'd been uh, a critical observer, I would have been very suspicious about that deanship since they'd had 10 turnovers in the dean's office in the prior decade, Um, a series of interims and a series. They had one permanent dean who only lasted 90 days, Uh, which just goes to show with the right support from people, uh, we can accomplish a lot of things. And I think at this point, I'm the longest tenured dean they've had since World War II. Uh, I, I t- also took on responsibility for the health system, and then seven years later took on those combined roles at Penn State after their failed merger with the Geisinger Health System. And it was at that point, having been deeply embedded in research leadership and then academic leadership and then adding health system leadership, that the AMC really felt like a natural home. I'd I'd enjoyed the Council of Deans, and I was honored to be asked to consider following Jordan Cohen, my predecessor, who's a true giant in academic medicine. So 
a nonlinear co- career that was largely unplanned uh, turned into the perfect per, uh, perfect preparation to work with this great complex organization that is the AMC. Now, I'm curious, you said something about a mentor back at, I think it was UC Denver, who said, no, you need to set your sights bigger. And you said he's the one who got you into NIH. What do you think he observed or he noticed in you that made you, in his mind, a good candidate for leadership outside of the lab or outside of the clinic? Would you tell the GFA family and the people who are listening now that you had some innate skill or did you had you been practicing or expressed interest in leadership by books or something? I'm curious, you know, what is that um, thing that you had that made someone take notice? Yeah, he's uh, he's he's gone on to be an internationally recognized research leader, and we've remained good friends. And and he says that what was driving him mainly was he thought I had some raw potential. But he knew that it would be that while he would have benefited more by keeping me there, he wanted me to get the benefit that that uh, a broadened horizons. So in a sense, I think what mentors and sponsors, one of the best things they sometimes do for us is kick us out of the nest. And I think he saw that I was comfortable and I was doing fine where I was. But he wanted me to test my limits more. And that was a very generous and gracious thing for him to do. Not every, not every mentor is willing to, when they're benefiting from the work of somebody, give that away for the benefit of possibly advancing that person's career. That's definite true, true yeah. mentorship, as you said, generous and selfless. You're very fortunate. So, over these years, you know, as you're, you're winding down your tenure at AAMC, you certainly noticed patterns and trends and big changes in academic affairs or faculty development over, your, over the years. So, what, what kind of jumps out at you as you look back now in the academic affairs space of things you've noticed or observed that have kind of remained in your mind now? When I became... Dean first in 1994, I was amazed at how much medical school had not changed since I was a med student and resident. I mean, it was still very focused on departments and sections and individual effort. And so when you talked in into the 90s, when you talked about faculty development, it was generally viewed that well, a good chair and a good section chief will help a faculty member grow in any way they need to. And there simply wasn't this concept that having some centralized support for that effort could be much more beneficial for the professional progression of faculty members than hoping that department chairs and section chiefs developed faculty by spontaneous combustion you know they weren't they weren't stu- you know they're great people highly skilled they weren't students of professional development or faculty development they didn't really think as much about 
how one built a portfolio uh, to advance uh, as a faculty member. And for me, when I saw the power as a dean of having a centralized function and how more and more, it didn't take chairs and section chiefs totally out of the loop, but a centralized faculty affairs, academic affairs function could really potentiate their efforts, um, not conflict with them. And then I saw the, the, the benefits just simply having fewer problems with promotion and tenure cases going forward with appointments, being able to develop school-wide leadership programs targeted for different cohorts and different levels of development, uh, and all the benefit that accrued to that and just making the institution more effective. And, uh, you know, it was really rewarding for me to see some of these people who were my mentors in the areas of faculty affairs, faculty development, uh, become really the individuals who drove the creation of the GFA, um, which is now one of the stronger groups in the AMC and uh, does incredibly important work on making sure that that uh, we develop the talent we have, that we don't just turn them off on their own and hope they sink or swim but that we can add real support to them from a centralized function. I love that that idea of move away from this idea that faculty development happens via spontaneous combustion. I love that idea because when I came to Hopkins six years ago, I met with a, a department director who said, basically, you know, faculty development happens at the local level. We take care of it here at the department level. And, and I appreciate that and, and certainly have a lot of respect for what happens that needs to be tailored at those local levels. But I kind of felt, um, I felt badly after that conversation because I thought, oh my gosh, you know, he, he, he does not, he doesn't appreciate the, you know, that centralized component as you talked about potentiating efforts and kind of trying to capitalize on the, the wealth of knowledge that we've come up with tools and programs. And so I remember feeling, a uh, little bit dismissed at that at that meeting, and so there's still some of that you know that feeling that it does happen by spontaneous combustion. And well, back in the day when I was a faculty member, you just write the grants, you know, get the papers, see your patients. You just gotta put your nose down and work. And I, and so I appreciate your awareness and recognition of the value of our combined efforts. I think what I was especially disappointed in hearing was I would try to, as often as possible, if somebody was leaving the institution, meet with them briefly to just find out what their experience had been like and why they were going. And I had too many cases where a junior faculty member felt that they were, um, that there had been a kind of bait and switch with them that they've been drawn drawn with the promise of, you know, the ability to develop an academic career with its different dimensions. But then it had turned into sink or swim, pretty much left to their own devices. Uh, I recall junior clinician faculty 
saying that they felt they'd been used as cannon fodder. They'd been put in extremely intensive clinical positions to, you know, grind out patient visits and surgical procedures and so on, but that the development support wasn't there. Uh, and that for me was really eye-opening. It, it, it was clearly a professional failure on my part, on the part of others, to not pay it forward. We'd, we'd benefited from support so often and mentorship and uh, professional development. And if we were backing away from that, that was was a real failure for us in academic leadership. Um, I, I think, though, <clears throat> while there are still people who would kind of prefer to run their departments in relative autonomy and isolation, just the, the robust nature of the GFA as a group and the content that we see at the annual meeting in November and, and see at the GFA spring meetings or summer meetings just proves that um, it, it isn't just that a beachhead has been established. I think the precedent is firmly established now. Um, and I don't see us ever regressing from that. That you talk about this, this feeling of bait and switch and, and my heart breaks too, because I still think, you know, despite the fact that you, you go back to the nineties and you remember this culture, I still, I still see evidence of that, that happening where we, despite having this nice infrastructure and these resources and, and so many different, um, seminars and workshops and programs for faculty, so we've built this up, but I, I almost, I talk about it sometimes like I feel like I'm walking around at a really busy restaurant with this beautiful, beautiful tray of just gorgeous looking desserts that are just wonderful and that all the diners there just watch me walking around going, oh, that's lovely. It looks beautiful. It looks delicious. Um, I'm still, however, waiting for bread and water. And you're walking around trying to serve us these decadent desserts. And so I, I sometimes I feel like maybe we still have a little bit of that bait and switch because we've built up a lot of faculty development and academic affairs processes. And yet we're still walking around enticing these poor faculty members who are running 100 miles an hour. And they say, I'd love to slow down and, and do that. Uh, but excuse me, I have to get on, you know, Epic and chart and get papers and get grants and do committee work and do the regulatory compliance modules. Um, so it's just, it's such a tough time when you're, um, when you have something, you know, that's good for professional development, but they're simply carving out that time and helping department directors recognize the value in that investment of someone's career is that's still a, to me a struggle. Do you see that? I, I, I do. I, uh, I hear it, uh, when I visit campuses and where I really sense it is, you know, we do the professional development programs for early and mid career women and early and mid career minority faculty. And they're, they're hungry for strategies, advice, lessons learned on how they can, uh, despite the demands on them, uh, can move forward in their aspirations for, for their future academic careers. I, I think uh, one of the saddest things uh, 
is when someone will say to me, I attended that program, I was so inspired and excited, but when I got back to the home campus, it seemed to evaporate pretty quickly under you know, the crisis of the day. So uh, I feel, I mean, the AMC is very committed to expanding its programs. These programs are all oversubscribed, which means the demand is out there. But, but I think in the end, it does take an institutional commitment to say, um, uh, people laugh now when we talk about protected time, but protected time for some professional development, um, you know, is a great investment compared to faculty turnover and burnout. That's right. We've got the data, you know, demonstrating this, what, what you lose when the faculty member walks out the door. Do you, what, now here's just something just popped in my head. This idea of protected time and, and setting aside X number of hours per year for professional development, would, how would that ever get into an LCME kind of a process? Do you envision that that would be something where just as LCME comes and makes sure we're, you know, abiding by all many other guidelines, would that be something that you think would ever be formalized? Um, how do you think that would go over? I, I'm not sure it would become a standard. And, uh, you know, maybe I can back up and, and say a bit about how I think we got into this trap. When I first heard people talk about protected time, even when I was a resident, there was the assumption that that meant that every junior faculty member, you know, was going to be given this many hours or these afternoons or whatever a week to do scholarly work, preferably research that would lead to an NIH grant that would lead to a second grant and so on. And there was a lot of discussion about, you know, uh, that the protected time was so that everybody could develop into a triple threat. The, re the reality is that um, while there are a few individuals who I think uh, represent triple threats, there were people who did it serially, not simultaneously. So, so the notion of the master clinician seeing boatloads of patients, writing boatloads of papers, getting boatloads of grants, and teaching students and residents, it, it just doesn't fit um, with human limitations anymore. And so uh, I, I think that the... Uh, that what we just as we've gotten away from talking so much about the triple threat, I think we're getting better at acknowledging that some people are uh, educational intensivists, some people are academic affairs intensivists, some people are clinical intensivists, even if they're primary care physicians. You know that people find their strong suits and their paths and their passions. Um, and our job in faculty development, I don't think, is just to give a, an amorphous blocks of time to people and say, okay, now go use that time and develop. But it's instead to help people figure out where their passions really lie and where their talents are. Uh, and to show them that all these career pathways can be extremely rewarding. 
You know, I was recently at a school with somebody who had been the student affairs dean there for for 30 years and was every bit as enthusiastic today as he was, I'm sure, when he started. You know, that was the right pathway for him. I, though, came up in a world of academic medicine where that was somehow viewed as a lesser role. the world, though, I think is shifting. Um, uh, I think of, of somebody who was very active in faculty affairs, uh, Tony Ganzel at Louisville, who has become a real leader among the deans. When 10 or 15 years ago, no one would have thought that coming as she did from more of an academic affairs, faculty affairs track would become the dean. Um, so I think the world is, is shifting, and um, this, again, it's no longer a notion of, I'll just give you an afternoon a week and you'll do something great. It's, it's more purposeful. How do we figure out where your passions really lie? It took me a while, obviously. Um, at first, I thought it was research. Um, uh, it took me a long time to think that maybe... Um, my passion was focused on just trying to help the organization thrive, whatever organization I was in. So you talk about, you know, mentorship over and over and over again. So this idea about dedicating some protected time to find our passions, find our talents, help our faculty identify their unique gifts, when perhaps many of them have just been so laser focused on undergraduate medical education, the residency, internship, fellowship, and postdoc and postdoc fellowship, and just so laser focused without maybe perhaps stopping to pause and say, wait a minute, you know, what are my values? What does get me excited? And so that kind of a model of helping faculty members identify those unique treasures and and talents sounds to me like it's a lot more labor intensive for mentors, depart- section chiefs, department directors, faculty development folks, because that sounds really like precision faculty development to me. We've talked about precision medicine, precision education, and Charlie Irvin from Vermont and I were giving a, uh, an Ignite session at the PDC, the Professional Development Conference in Chicago in July, talking about this concept, brand new, of... Um, that I started noodling around with is what is precision faculty development? It sounds like that may be what you're implying that we need to do is it's almost like individual development planning with faculty members, where they are now, their unique strengths, the weak links in their own chains and tailoring uh, development activities to help that person blossom. Does that sound like thing? It does. And I think, you know, it's, that's a nice, um, um, analogy to precision medicine, uh, personalized medicine. The, um, I don't fear the labor intensiveness for a couple reasons. One is, I think there there will be a huge return on investment. You know, if people find themselves and find themselves doing things in which they can thrive, the organization will perform better and the results will be better. And so it was a good investment. But the other reason I don't think it, it'll be too labor intensive is 
these are very bright people, very capable people. In some ways, they need, they don't need a lot of hand holding. What they need is permission to widen their view of the possibilities. So I believe that very well-intentioned mid and senior level faculty spend way too much time unconsciously sending the message to their quote unquote mentees that your job is to become just like me. Um, And I, so when I talk with our various professional development meetings about lessons I've learned, one of my top 10 lessons is beware of people who want you to replicate them because they might try to fit you into a career that is less gratifying, doesn't stir your passion. And so some of what, what this more precise mentoring is uh, less saying, you need to go back and, and think about what you're doing these days and tell me which days you enjoy most. <laughs> You know, when do you feel your when when do you work hard but feel that you've actually recharged your batteries versus been been drained? I don't know that that will take a lot more time, but there's but but this notion of let's stop telling people that the best thing they can become is you (laughs) me is like me mini mini me is a perfect perfect term. And uh, there's a corollary of that that I also often cite, which is let's not be so elitist. There's a remarkably high quality in U.S. academic medicine. Some places are bigger than others. Some places have more of a balance tilted toward research. But you can do great work and thrive at any one of the U.S. medical schools and, and major teaching hospitals. And so I, I think other people get caught up in uh, not only do you have to succeed in this specific way, but you need to do it at one of these five institutions. And that limits people's opportunities. You're exactly right, because it just puts that pressure. And I like what you're saying about you don't think it's going to take a lot of time commitment. And it's making me reflect on when I first started in faculty development by accident, like many people. I was at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago running a research mentoring program. And I'm a high E extrovert, so I love talking with people. And what I noticed that was just so obvious to me was when a faculty member would come to meet with me in this mentoring program, and I just do the usual getting to know you, you know, tell me about what you do, tell, tell me about your typical week or typical day. And it literally is so obvious to me when they start talking about they thing, the thing they love. Their eyes like light up, their face becomes so expressive, they become animated. It's almost like an electrical current. And then I, then I, I can see this transformation happen. And I say to them, oh my gosh, I'm not sure you're aware of the fact that you're, you're toying with these three options. But when you talked about number three, you looked so alive. I've never seen you look so excited. The, the, the speech pat, you started talking more rapidly. Your face lit up. And they say, really? 
And that is to this day, six, six years now I've been at Hopkins. So it's over 12 years of faculty development and it never fails to just make me so joyful to sit across from a faculty member and they're so used to these annual review meetings where you're just marching in and you're talking about RVUs and what do you bring into the institution and trying to demonstrate your value. But when you just, me as a mentor or the faculty development person, just be quiet and watch them and hear them talk, you're exactly right. It doesn't take any longer to just see from them sharing and having the space and the permission, as you say, to widen the angle, let's widen this conversation, a new frame, and they will often, they know, as you said, they're smart, they know what they're good at or what they want to do, but they so rarely get the opportunity to articulate that. So I just love that idea. You're so right. It doesn't take any more time. Yeah. I. Uh, what saddens me is often when people start to reveal what they're really passionate and excited about, sometimes they sound guilty as if they're failing the the expectations that have been built up around them. And uh, I, uh, I understand, you know, why the average senior faculty member believes they're doing the most important kind of work <laughs> in the best place to do it. Uh, but we we do our a disservice to those coming behind us if we try to to arbitrarily impose that on them. Yeah, and especially when we think about diversity issues and the the younger generations. Now I'm talking about age diversity uh, and all the other facets yeah. of diversity. You know, you're so right. We yeah. we talk about what we know, so we just make all these assumptions. And and I just find if if I just close my mouth for a minute, things arrive. You know, I, I took the resilience workshop at the AAMC and I learned we did this values card deck sorting the sort deck. And it was just so, at first, when they gave us that assignment, I thought, oh, geez, Louise, here we go. And I was kind of annoyed. I know what I value. But now I've adopted that in my leadership courses. And I tell people, just, you know, come, you know, humor me. We're going to do this. And every person to the T, as did I, you really, when you calm down and you think about this, that's where that kind of mission misalignment. And as you talked about some people, it's a big hidden secret that, you know, maybe I don't really want to do this. Maybe I'm really not should be seeing patients. Maybe I am more suited for education, but I've never told anybody. It's a big secret. So that kind of self-knowledge and self-awareness and thinking about yourself, you know, we just, we go on autopilot. And so many of our faculty members, I think, do the same thing. They're just marching along because that's what is expected of them. So providing space and opportunity for the big reveal. Guess what? I like doing that before, and now I like doing this, or I'm really curious about that. And applauding, the rest of us applauding that as opposed to tisk-tisking about their failure to follow the prescribed path. So, you know, you, you've been involved in the Council of Deans for so, so long. I can't help but be curious. You know, what I, I've never sat in with these big groups, and I, you know, we've got a great dean, Paul Rothman, and so I sit on our monthly advisory board meetings. And what, when you get a bunch of deans together, what do they think about in terms of academic affairs or faculty development? You know, do, can you 
kind of summarize for us or give us a little bit of sneak peek inside those kind of hallowed walls? What are they talking about? What are they worried about? What do they wish we would do or stop doing? Can you give us any kind of um, head up or, you know, a little, little head start on trying to figure out how to work better with our deans? You know, some of it depends on whether the dean is a narrowly defined dean or also heading the health system uh, and faculty practice or even heading the other health profession schools. But uh, deans, uh, it's interesting to watch the transition from thinking like a department chair to thinking like a dean when people make that move. And, And that is the most common path. Uh, into a deanship. Uh, but the dean's job is so complex, uh, so multifaceted, that what I observed myself doing and what I observed them doing is kind of making a, a running assessment of which air, in which areas are things going well in this institution. Uh, and where are the potential risks, problems, stresses, and so on? And it's it's you know I don't think it's a negative statement that I don't hear a great deal of discussion from the deans about their faculty affairs programs, their promotion tenure programs, their uh, uh, any broader academic affairs issues because they have a high level of confidence in the people running them because because the results, um, you know, which probably the best test of these results is an accreditation visit, uh, they typically don't have problems there. Um, and the, dean, the deans tend to focus on the areas where they think there, there are problems that need to be fixed as our clinical systems change and it has become even more challenging to ensure good uniformity of high quality clinical experiences for our students and residents, that gets more attention. You know, uh, with all the financial pressures, just the overall health of the clinical enterprise and especially the faculty practice gets a lot of their attention. So I often hear from the educational affairs deans, the faculty affairs deans, uh, a bit of a lament that they don't feel that the dean is paying much attention to what they're doing. And what I try to to tell them is that that's actually a vote of confidence. Um, That if they felt that things were going awry, that, that there weren't benefits to what was being done, that it wasn't helping keep them as a strong, fully accredited institution, they would be paying attention to it. The fact that they pay less attention simply means they're pretty pleased with what they hear and see. And and I think actually when you look at, at sort of the summative data that the LCME puts out about um, citations, areas, they, don't, they obviously don't publish the individual reports for each school, but periodically they'll summarize what are the most frequently cited standards that schools have failed to meet. It, it's rare, in my experience, to see uh, issues related to faculty affairs and academic affairs being cited in, in those standards, which you know speaks volumes about what 
the kind of work you and your colleagues in these roles are doing. Just don't don't interpret their relative silence or what appears to be less attention to a, to a negative. It's probably totally the opposite. Yeah. Now, I, I remember a couple of years ago, maybe almost three years ago now, when our Dean Rothman came back from the, um, I think it was the AMA Joy, you know, burnout meeting, and he was got real, got on the stick real quick, and we now have a chief wellness officer that we um, have 50% effort of Dr. Lee Doherty Bittison, you know, chief wellness officer. Do you see opportunity or uh, areas that faculty development or academic affairs should be starting to pay attention to. So they're not paying attention to us because we're doing okay, thank you very much. But is there something we can proactively start thinking about? What, what can you think about that we should maybe um, be proactive about? We, we started paying attention to burnout and the unfortunate problems that are often associated with it, like depression or substance abuse or even suicide, we, we finally kind of have it on the front burner and are studying it. And if you go to the National Academy of Medicine's website on clinician well-being, they've done a beautiful job of showing the array of all the factors that could contribute to burnout. So if I were a sitting dean today, um, what I would advise them to do is a have their whoever they've designated to take the lead on uh, issues of burnout among the faculty and among the students. Have them look at that list and see are there opportunities where we could improve our organizational culture uh, that would help mitigate uh, against burnout. Um, and, you know, there's a saying I hear now that all burnout is local. So why, you know, why most of the people in one ICU are burned out may be very different from why they're, they're burned out in another ICU or they're not burned out at all in the other ICU. So you have to kind of drill down ultimately to the local level, which is what uh, a lot of these chief well-being officers will be doing. Uh, you know, you can't change what you don't measure, and there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of tools for assessing the state of burnout in faculty and learners. Some of them are pretty easy to use, others are more complex. Um, but I would, I, I think every faculty affairs dean should be partnered with whoever what is taking the point on burnout and well-being issues to look for those faculty affairs, academic affairs, specific things that need attention. In one institution, um, or even in one department, it may be um, uh, the way scheduling is handled, or short-staffing short short is tolerated. Um, in another medical school, it might be uh, a promotion and tenure track system that seems to leave no room for variation. Um, I think um, the in some places it'll be the availability of con confidential good counseling services. Um, so I think I think uh, as these chief wellness officer roles emerge, whatever they're titled. There's got to be a natural alliance with the faculty affairs leader uh, and the student affairs leader and the DIO for the residents. 
I think at least sitting down and and you know doing some organizational scanning to see which pieces each of those key leaders could could focus on. Going forward, what what are you planning on doing, and um, what advice do you have for us? Well, uh, going forward, uh, one thing I'm looking forward to is being in Chicago on July 11th just to um, say hello to the uh, GFA folks who are there. Um, in terms of what I'm personally going to do, I'm going to take a mini sabbatical in uh, late from mid-July to mid-September um, out in the mountains of Colorado. And um, I, uh, all options are open. Uh, I got great advice from people, which is I'd get a lot of suggestions, which I have, and I'd serve myself well to think about them uh, and uh, not make any early decisions. So I'm, I've entered yet another phase of my own professional development, and uh, I'm continuing to think like a mentee and seeking out people who I think have good thoughts and who know me well and uh, can help help me find the answer to that question of what am I passionate about now for this next chapter of my life? Uh, what could I bring to the table? So in, we shall see where it leads. But I, I, I love I love academic medicine Healthcare, the future of the nation, too much to, to go off somewhere and play golf. You know, you, what you just articulated is a, is a beautiful summary of our experiences with our transitioning faculty at Hopkins and a lot of our peer institutions around the country. Let me back up a second. We, the GFA, the Group on Faculty Affairs, about three years ago, we started a project called the Late Career Faculty Survey. And pretty soon here, we're going to have two publications coming out in academic medicine that summarize the results of this survey. We surveyed full-time faculty members age 55 and older in a representative sample of academic institutions across the country. Then we also surveyed all the academic affairs deans at every um, medical institution, asking them about their retirement offerings for late career faculty, programming, what kind of services we have. And we came out with, you know, a, a really telling information, which to date we've had nothing published about late career faculty. But what you said is exactly what we found at Hopkins when we did this. We started an academy, the Academy for Retired uh, faculty in School of Medicine, Nursing, and Public Health. And as part of that Academy grand opening just last summer, we, we hosted a four-part series called the Transition Next Chapter Series. And helping late career faculty members, say, you know, 55 and older, start thinking about it. And what you said is, is what everybody's articulated. For those of us in academic medicine, our master status has been, I'm an academician. So the idea of just stopping is no longer part of retirement. Even the word itself, no one wants to think about retiring or stopping. And almost to a person, everyone wants to maintain a foothold in mentoring faculty or education, helping write papers, coaching, helping with um, education or uh, clinical observation, anything that they want to keep doing the things they love to help younger faculty. So what you said about 
I'm talking to people. I'm thinking about it. I don't want to just stop. That is exactly where so many of our faculty members um, are in the same place. And that, that's, I guess, another little maybe a, a PSA for all our friends out there listening on the podcast that late career faculty is nothing but growing. There's a tremendous reservoir of intellectual capital there. Uh, people with great values and, and great wisdom and experience. Well, Dr. Kurtz, do you have any, any parting words for us as we close this segment of the Faculty Factory podcast? Just that uh, I am deeply, deeply appreciative of everything the GFA leadership, all those involved in academic affairs, faculty affairs in any capacity in our institutions have done. I mean, we are so much stronger for all the work uh, that's gone into uh, the development of, of these programs. We've come a long way in less than a generation. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.